Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for spending time with me today. I'm looking forward to what's ahead. We've got Guy Talk starting in just about a minute or so. And then in the second hour, Roger Parrott's going to join me. He's written a, a book called Opportunity Leadership. Stop planning and start getting results. That intrigued me. Leading without a plan is the plan. I can't wait to hear about that. And then Bev Canaris is going to join me. We're going to talk about consecration. So that's the schedule today. I hope you can be with me for all of it. And I hope you have nothing to do except sit and listen to the radio, because that makes me happy that you are uh, listening. So thank you. So Guy Talk today, I'm delighted once again to have in studio Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish. And coming live on Skype is Dr. Peter Kapsner, and who knows where 007 is. So gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, thank you. Any uh, any sightings on 007? I, not, nothing from my end, hiding our hair from him. He just kind of pops up randomly, and I never know when it's going to happen. Yeah. Jeff, you had something I, funny I, in the green room. <laughs> are we sure he's not captured someplace? He like, might be. <laughs> tied up on a table with some laser bot ready to cut him in half or something. Yeah. So. Don't worry, he'll get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great reference from Dr. No. I think that's, that's Goldfinger. Oh, is that Goldfinger? That was Goldfinger. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was wrong again. Do you Dr. expect Noah? me to talk, Goldfinger? No, I Dr. expect Noah's you to die. First, back first movie. Die. Yeah. All right. <laughs> let me know what your questions are. Hopefully they're not movie trivia, but if you want to <laughs> send them over, let uh, let us know what you have for us. 877-933-2484. Text them over. 877-933-2484. All right. We were talking about this in the green room in Matthew chapter 5. It talks about if you are offering your gift at the altar and they're... Remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And I haven't seen tons of commentary on this verse, but it sounds like, and Jeff and I were talking, and Tom, before the show, Peter, you weren't here, of course, but if you're at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you go reconcile with them. Now, what is that like? Let's say I've made a healthy decision. I've put up a healthy boundary, and it made you mad, Peter. So you've got something against me. So am I supposed to leave my gift at the altar and come reconcile with you? And where in Scripture is there an illustration of this? Is this hypothetical between you and me, Bill? Yeah, it's hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, what did you guys talk about? I'm so curious. I'm just getting caught up to speed on this question because that that is, I mean, that's real life stuff right there, right? I, uh, I can yeah. say that I absolutely have been at the communion table and thought, gosh, I feel like something is unresolved, but I'm curious what you guys said about it. Well, I'll let Jeff go and then Tom. Well, we started talking about the fact that Paul says that we are ministers of reconciliation, right? Second Corinthians mm-hmm. 5.18 calls us reconcilers. That's one of the things that believers in Christ should do. Now, we no longer have a physical altar, right, that we are leaving gifts before, but we worship a spiritual altar, right, the Christ that, that now passed through the better tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle. Uh, so, so this doesn't directly apply to us in terms of the 
the physical nature of the altar. But the principle, I think, still applies. As as we have issues, we as mature Christians should be the first ones to offer that olive, olive branch. We should be the first ones to, to go to our brother when we have tension or issues between us. And uh, and be that first one to be that minister of reconciliation. Now that that minister of reconciliation in Second Corinthians five eighteen is first and foremost to try to reconciliate reconcile lost people to God, but I think also on a horizontal level with our own relationships as well. So, yeah, good word. I know in verse uh, twenty three, as I'm looking at it here, one of the things I stumbled across from R. C. H. Lenski, who's the great Greek commentator. He learned about 100 years ago. He says that the latter part of the verse, that your brother has something against you, the verbs that are being used there is like a special revelation comes to you in the middle of worship. So you're singing how great thou art, and in the middle of it, all of a sudden, you realize, hey, I haven't, no wonder my brother doesn't talk to me. I haven't talked to him or picked up the phone in years. I've got to do that. And the implication is in the text here that you quit singing the song of praise. You go out of the worship service, you pick up the phone, and you call your brother. Or you go and you talk to somebody that you have a broken relationship with. But the emphasis seems to be, it's not just my own guilty conscience that's getting me at the altar there or in worship. It's like the Holy Spirit says, hey, Tom, this is something you really got to deal with and deal with now. Yeah, boy, I like that explanation, Tom. You said that came from somebody that was talking about how it was being framed within the original language. Yeah, I've never heard that teaching before, but that makes sense. Uh, But and, And I think... That's definitely happened. I'm sure it's happened to all of us, right? Is that suddenly somebody comes to mind, seemingly random, but it's never really random, in which it's it's time to now try to work some things out. But I think, Bill, you still have asked a really good question. What do you do in a kind of situation in which you have to have healthy boundaries up where you probably are not able to work something out? Uh, or, or even like, what does work it out look like, mm-hmm. right, in those situations? And, and I think that's a open-ended question. And and maybe it's as simple as saying, hey, I know there's still strife between us. I don't know how to go further than the healthy boundaries in which we currently live, but I would like to at least entertain that question. I mean, maybe that's what that looks like in that moment. Well, verse 24 really gives us, I think, part of the answer. It says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. The point is not that you are going to be reconciled, but you now make the effort to be reconciled. And there are some people you're never going to be reconciled with in life. They're never going to forgive you. They're never going to whatever it may be. But the Lord is saying, look, as someone who is my disciple, I want you to behave this way, even if the people you're going to don't respond properly. And I know it's kind of a strange thought. I mean, my I remember I had an aunt. She was very strong-willed. And I remember talking about forgiveness to me one time, and she goes, yes, Tommy. I was a little guy at that point. It was about three years ago. She <laughs> said, yes, Tommy. When they come crawling on their knees to me on broken glass, then I'll forgive them. And I think that's that's pretty much human nature. We've been really hurt, or we've really hurt somebody, even though we thought justified. We're very reluctant to do anything about it. Jesus is saying here, Hey, if you're going to follow me, you got to be like me. And I went looking for my enemies. You know, just about every Christian that I've talked to, serious of, of, about how they hear God, has some kind of story. Where, yeah, the Lord prompted me to mm-hmm. do this, or you know, this person just came to my mind, or whatever. And it it really exhorts you to, hey, we better listen to those promptings and and act on them sooner rather than later. Yeah, Jeff, I can't agree with you more about that. I just even just last night, I was um, there was some different things going on in the business that I run, and um, 
some interpersonal stuff was coming up and, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this too. You get one side of a story and you can kind of, it leaves you unsettled and maybe uh, that side of the story is true, but there's probably more to it. And, and you just, you feel this internal sense of dis-ease or like you said, sometimes some prompting to keep digging in more. And, and I think that happens in all of our relationships that we need to pay real close attention to what maybe some people call the gut. But I think there's more to it than that for believers. I think there's that, that intuition that the spirit drives that we need to pay attention to in those situations. One thing I've run into with dying people, because I've been with a lot of them, one of the big things at the end of their life is regret. There is a lot of regret, even among Christians, faithful Christians. Regret I didn't spend more time with my children. Regret I didn't tweet my, you know, treat my spouse better. But regret that I didn't try to reconcile with my estranged brother hmm. or with my nephew or whatever it may be. And so that's the big one we want to deal with, but it's the most hidden. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate this discussion. I, I like this very much. And if I were to just rephrase Scripture, which I hate doing, I'm just trying to use this as an illustration. Mm-hmm. If it said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that you have something against your brother or mm-hmm. sister, yeah, then go and reconcile. But the verse says, uh, and, you, and you're there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. And I think that's where that's where I struggle with the verse, just a little, because I'm not going to let you use my car because you have two DUIs, and you're all mad at me now. You have something against me. What am I supposed to do? It, well, it doesn't say what the issue is, right? Did you do something? Did you know what happened? Did you have an argument? Did you have a fight? Did, you know, are do they are do they have an issue with you because of something that you did? I mean, we don't have enough detail I get here, it. so I don't I get know. It. So but... I'm, just, I'm just trying to squeeze what is in this that we walk away with in a brown paper bag. Well, I think that that bag contains this humility, that you, as the mature believer in Christ, should be the one that takes the initiative to bring reconciliation to that relationship. Amen. This, Thomas, you were just talking about. Call them. Don't regret not calling somebody that you love. If there's somebody in your family and you've had an issue, you've had an argument, and and neither one of you have picked up the phone now in days or weeks or months or years, yeah. uh, be that one to go reconcile with your brother. Be the you agent know, of reconciliation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, Jesus, the most phenomenal teacher of all time, is teaching his disciples and followers how to behave. And I know mm-hmm. I taught high school for several years, and I've done a lot of teaching in the ministry. When you ask a question of somebody, and it's a standardized question, well, Jeff, if you got something against your brother, what should you do? Well, I should go be reconciled with my brother. A good teacher takes it the next step and pushes it beyond the boundary you'd even think of, which is, well, what if he has something against you, but you don't recognize it? That's a teaching technique of the rabbis. That's a teaching technique in Judaism, and that's a teaching technique we've mm-hmm. lost today mm-hmm. in our Western culture because it forces us beyond the obvious to what's not obvious. Yeah, and and Bill, just to your question too, and doing some research on the fly, I don't know that this is necessarily faithful to what the verse is trying to teach in light of what we're talking about, but I'm reading um, some commentary on this that is suggesting there's there's a difference between uh, having somebody being upset with you for something that was maybe justified. Like Mm -hmm. they use an example of you, you're an employer. And you fired an employee, and they're still mad about it, but yeah. you did the right thing. Right. There's nothing to do there. Or if a mother disciplines a child, and that child's upset with them, but but they're saying specifically, if there is sin that you have committed against another person, and that comes to light, then you, you've got to go take care of that. Yeah, I like that. Uh, great discussion. 
Let me know what your questions are. Send them over, 877-933-2484, as we are in Forgiveness Month here at Faith Radio. Let's be agents of reconciliation. Let's take the first step. Let's pick up the phone. Let's call and make uh, an appointment to see somebody and to make a difference in the life of the relationship. We're going to take a break and come back. Let me know what your questions are. Once again, 877-933-2484. My wingman Terry says, and the ransom for Agent Justin is $1 million. (laughs) Yes, we'll be right back. James Bond movies. That's the James Bond music. It is. Yeah, all-time high. It's good. Done by the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. Wow. I picked these by hand, just so you know. I move that we only use James Bond music from now on. It's so cool. I I mean, for Guy Talk? Yeah, Should we just make Guy Talk all James Bond music? I would move for that. I don't know if we could do it for how long, but we'll run out. I feel good about that, but you know, Ben-Hur, the music in that is another one that's wonderful. That's good, isn't it? Yes, it is. All right, you just got voted off the island. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, we couldn't do this without you, Tom Parrish. Thank you so much for being here. Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, Peter Kapsner is the power panel today. Let me know what questions you have for us. 877-933-2484. Here's a question. Please explain carnal Christian with Scripture. Can they really be considered Christian? Well, that word carnal, uh, depending on what version of your Bible is, it actually comes from 1 Corinthians, and Paul actually calls the Corinthians carnal. Uh, I think that's in the King James Version. In the NIV, it says worldly. And he says, but you are still carnal or you are still worldly for since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not being worldly? What he's saying is you are Christians. You've been made new. You've been made holy. You've been set apart, but you're still acting like the world is acting. So I I don't want to take this criticism of Paul to the church at Corinth in, in any way to question their salvation. We're saved by faith. He is talking about their actions, their behavior, and they're still acting. They haven't grown up in maturity in Christ uh, to to act set apart. They've been made holy, now act holy, and they're not doing that. And that's why Paul calls the Corinthians carnal. You know, one of the things I always try to teach people is, look at what the text actually says. Not what you read into it from 2022. And if it uses the term carnal Christians, what is a Christian? A Christian is somebody that has surrendered their life to Jesus. So the text isn't denying that. It's not saying they haven't surrendered their life to Jesus. What it's saying is they haven't caught up with who they're supposed to be in Jesus. And the world is still has more dominance than he does. Yeah, no, don't have anything to add with that. I agree. I just I, The one piece that I want to emphasize that you said, Tom, is that I think when we hear the word Christian— we just have to consistently think follower of Jesus because that's actually what that word means. And then as followers, we do, we're in the daily battle of the carnal flesh versus life in the spirit. The Bible is terribly clear that just because you've made a decision to follow Jesus doesn't mean that you are exempt from the influences of this world. It just means that there's now a new power at work in your life 
that you're doing battle with. And it sounds like the Corinthian community had was either not aware of that power somehow or was more interested in, in maintaining sort of this carnal view of doing their life. You know, in verse 1, I just looked up a little bit, and it says, you are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. And it's like, all right, so they've been saved, but they haven't, They, you know, we have the benefit of the entire New Testament today, right? We do. So they, we've been, we were able to read all the exhortations of the New Testament on how we should be living our lives, all the one another's that are in Scripture, all the admonitions to do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, Romans 12. So we now have all this information that says, hey, we should... We should. We are in the world, but not of the world. We should be transformed by the word of God. We need to start thinking biblically rather than worldly. The Corinthians, obviously, as mere infants in Christ, didn't have all that teaching yet. Yeah, and I've said this several times, I think, over the last few months, but I just, I really love reading the stories of the early followers of Jesus. I mean, we use these words like disciples and Christians, and sometimes I think we lose track of what we actually mean by that. So again, Christian is a follower of Jesus. The disciples said, yes, I will follow you to the invitation that Jesus kept saying to them, follow me, follow me. He says it 93 times in in the Gospels. And they said, yes, I will follow you, which meant they're going to become a disciple, which meant they're going to learn how to be and act and become from the inside out like Jesus is. But then my favorite parts of the stories is that they are like legitimately terrible at it for the longest <laughs> period of time. One of, one of my favorite stories, I think, was Matthew chapter 10. Jesus functionally gives them the Great Commission, the same thing he gives them in Matthew 28 about go and spread my kingdom. But but he says, first, go to the lost sheep in the house of Israel. And, and he begins to send them into the villages and says, go do what I do. And they go try it out, right? And they come back and they're like, Jesus, we got nothing. Like, literally, we have no idea how to do what you're doing. And I just, I don't know what you guys think, but I take such solace in that because I think there's this understandable pressure that the, the moment you make a decision for Jesus or however we phrase that, we think then every, like, the, the entire kit of holiness comes with it. But when we read the early disciples, it wasn't until they had followed for a long period of time and towards the end of their life that they really began to, to grow stronger in this kingdom, kingdom way of life. I just add really quick, Tom, sorry. Let's, lest we forget that we have been made holy, God calls us to be holy, but only one person has ever done that perfectly his whole life, and that's Jesus Christ. All the rest of us are works in progress. All the rest of us in some way, shape, or form are maybe not infants, but we're still toddlers in our faith, and we still conform to the world in so many ways. How many times have you seen an altar call? And I'm a Lutheran, and I've done altar calls. I still do them. How many times have you seen an altar call where the pastor says, all right, now I want you to come forward, and we're going to pray, and I want you to repent of your sins and receive Jesus. And then when he hits the amen, he says, now the hard work begins. Because we seem to think that once we get saved, we don't have to do anything. And too often Lutherans, on their emphasis on grace, almost did that and didn't mean to. But we have a process of growing up now, not to get saved, but because we are saved. And I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment in the kingdom of God when, you know, you get to heaven and they enroll you in kindergarten when you should be graduating from college. But they have naps in kindergarten. So. <laughs> no, I'm not opposed to that. Blankets, too. Yeah, a little blankets. Sounded pretty compelling, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I just said kindergarten. I meant kindergarten. So anyway, I said that as a kid. Kindergarten. I'm going to kindergarten. All right. Uh <laughs> 
Uh, here's a question. Wasn't um, Matthias made the 12th apostle in Acts one twenty six? Is Paul considered to be the 13th apostle? Gentlemen? Um, I'll start on this one. I actually think yes. Um, when with the, Peter actually gets the 12 together and says uh, he reads an Old Testament passage about when uh, someone leaves, another needs to take his position or take his place. And so they decide to cast lots to determine which one of these two that they've selected should become the apostle. It's, it falls to Matthias, but then we never actually hear anything about Matthias ever again. In the meantime, we have this guy, Paul, who mm-hmm. is called by God, who probably a dozen times in the New Testament calls himself an apostle, uh, in, including in, in most of his introductions, to mo- in most of his letters, where he says, you know, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart by the gospel of God. Galatians, he actually calls himself an apostle uh, and compares himself to the other apostles. So I actually believe that it wasn't Matthias that was the replacement apostle, but it was Paul, who was the ended up being the apostle to the Gentiles. So, but I know there, I I know have some good friends that adamantly disagree with me. They said no, Matthias was the one chosen by lot. But where else in the New Testament do Christians determine the will of God by the casting of lots? Is that an appropriate way to determine the will of God? I would argue, no, it isn't. But. Well, the problem is we don't know today what that really means. You know, the lot fell to Matthias. What what does that really mean? However, though, and and as you look at the scriptures, the apostles believed that was the Lord's answer because it says the lot fell to him and they had prayed to the Lord. So from their perspective, they believe lots worked. I've always said after all these years in the church, I wish we had lots back again instead of council meetings or (laughs) congregational meetings. It would be much easier, you know, to determine to determine things. Wasn't there precedent for this that the high priest in Israel typically wore um, something like Urim and Thummim around his neck, and that this was a typical way in which, in the history of Israel, they would then take these bones out of this little container around the high priest's neck that then they would roll out as a means of discerning God's will. So I think it has some precedent in that, and clearly the disciples seemed familiar or comfortable with that. So I, it is a really puzzling way of understanding God's will for the future. And so, like, I wrestle with this. Did, did they, what was the author of Acts, Luke, was he just describing what they were doing and not necessarily advocating for it? Or was it just sort of part of the worldview that this is the way God answers prayer? I think it's a really interesting question. I think I searched if there's other instances where they cast lots. I think there's a couple instances in the Old Testament yes. where they actually did cast lots to determine something. And, and in a it, what seems like an appropriate way. Yes, I believe that the Luke account is just historical and not as a it's not a stamp of approval necessarily or not on on what they were doing. But I'll just add to that this little fact. In the Old Testament, remember, nobody, no person of God who was following God had the spirit of God within them, right? We, as New Testament believers who are born again, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us. Mm-hmm. So Paul says, if we live by the Spirit— we will not gratify the desires of the fresh. So I think we are led by the Spirit today and not by a bag of bones. So you know, one if, of the problems is, and we're struggling. <laughs> oh, I'll let it go. We well, we do have to take a break. Okay. So uh, can you hold that thought? Yeah, Can I you do. jot it down I'm so we can resume? I'm hanging to it. Yeah, good. Not letting go. That was Tom Parrish. We'll resume with him when we come back. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, and they do a great job. Let me know what questions you have for them. 877-933-2484. We'll take any question you got. Be right back. 
All right, there's someone out there that's willing to get out their their phone, their smartphone, and and hit the record button and sing along to that song and then send it to me. I'd love to hear how, how well you sound when you're singing along to that song. Because you guys are kind of dancing a little oh, bit. Oh, we always dance and yeah. kind of sing to that song. Yeah, it's kind of sad. All right. Um, <laughs> it's Guy Talk, so let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Peter Kapsner, Jeff Verdorn, and uh, Tom Parrish are my uh, power panel. And let's go back to something we were talking about earlier, because Tom Parrish, you, you, you talked a little bit about yeah. salvation. You say a prayer, and then the hard work begins. And there's someone pushing back, I think, a little bit on, on you, saying... Uh, where does it say a prayer saves you and then the hard work begins? The hard work begins because of the repentance requirement. Now go and sin no more. R- right hand cut, pop sure. eye out, work it out with fear and trembling, etc. Here's the struggle I have. You know, once I got saved many, many years ago, then giving over to Jesus my lust, my greed, my attitude toward others was a process. And the only way I learned how to do it is not because I worked harder at doing it. It's when I learned how to be thankful I was so thankful to Jesus for all he had done for me. And for me, that was hard work for a long time. Now, it's much easier now that I've walked with them quite a while. But the bottom line is, I try to help Christians understand that, no, you're not working on anything regarding your salvation. You are now being thankful, and it is hard work to give up a lot of those inner lusts and passions. But you're thankful to Jesus, and so that's why you do it. And when you do it that way, guess what? It can be done. And that's what I've tried to do in years of counseling with people. I don't try to give people formulas that are having marital problems, whatever. We talk about thankfulness. How thankful are you to Jesus for what he's done for you? These are Christians I'm talking about. And when a husband and wife can look at thankfulness, guess what? They can be reconciled. Yeah, Jeff? Yeah, Tom, when he says when the hard work begins, he's really what he's describing is the process that theologians call progressive sanctification. Mm-hmm. So salvation is is the process of you have been saved, salvation, you are being saved, progressive sanctification, and you will be saved, glorification. Those are the three descriptions of salvation in Scripture, past tense, present tense, and future tense. Once you're saved, that's done. Your salvation, you are secure. I mean, I'm a firm believer in our assurance of salvation that once you're born again and receive the Holy Spirit, that's forever. You have eternal life. Now, what Tom was describing, the hard work, now we need to live it out. And so we need to study Scripture. We need to read the exhortation. We need to grow in our faith and knowledge of him that says that the righteous shall live by faith. Well, is anybody living perfectly by faith yet? Uh, not anybody that I know. So that's the hard work that Tom was talking about. And do you know what the hard work primarily is that I think Paul describes? It's dying to self. Those were some of the things that Tom was just talking about. To put these things off, these emotions, these attitudes, and these these hang-ups that we have as as human beings living in the flesh, die to self and live for Christ. So that was the quote-unquote hard work that he was talking about. Yeah, I agree with the hard work angle of this, and and um, think in terms of just going back to something we talked about earlier is that I am always asking the question, what is it that I was saved from, and so I better understand what the journey is like moving forward. And and it's something we did reference, is that I, I think biblically the consistent witness is that we've been 
saved from the power of sin in our life that we cannot fight against with any effectiveness. So let's just say somebody has not surrendered their life to Jesus, become a follower, a disciple, all the language that we use. They're actually fighting a fight they can't win. There's no, right. there's actually no reason to fight. Sin is the greater power. If it wasn't, we wouldn't need a savior. And so that's why Jesus came was to, was to draw all of the power of sin upon himself into one location on the cross, take it into the waters of death with him, and then crush it with its defeat and in, in coming out of the grave on, on Sunday. And so now there's a new power at work in this world. And so once you've given your life to Christ, now you actually can fight. There was no reason to fight before because sin was going to win. Now you can fight because the, the, the Bible is pretty clear about the idea that you have the power or the resurrection power of the Spirit working within you in the fight against sin that um, becomes a battle day in and day out in the flesh. And there's going to be days where we do genuinely lose that fight. This is why people end up with big questions about, well, gosh, I had a pattern of sin for a while. Did I lose my salvation? Like all of those kinds of questions. But but really, we can fight because the Spirit is fighting with us and against sin. And, and it is a fight. We've got to decide to say yes again to the Spirit's work in our life every single day as part of that fight. Nicely done. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Let's talk about the expression in Scripture, enemies of the cross. Who are those people? And doesn't God so love the world? He... I was an enemy of the cross until Jesus woke me up. I didn't wake myself up. He spiritually woke me up when I was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I would have to put myself in that category. Now that I know Jesus, I've been moved out of that category into the category of the saved. And it's all by his work. And so that's what I depend on. But enemy is a strong term, but basically it means those that are opposed to the Lord and what the Lord wants. doesn't mean you have to be you know, hassle and, you know, pulling out a weapon and trying to hurt the Lord or somebody. But it means you're not going to obey him. You're still going to do what you want to do. And that's what the Bible means by an enemy of the cross. Now, lost people are opposed to God, using the language that you just used as the definition of enemy. So, yes. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. In fact, he calls us to love our enemies. Surely God loves his enemies. So therefore, you can call lost people the enemies of God and still say that God so loved the world, the lost world, his his opponents, those who are opposed to him, uh, that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal Everybody life. Everybody who's listening who is a believer, and those of us in the studio, are those very people you're talking about. We were his enemies. He came looking for us. When we woke up to him and surrendered our life, we give him all the credit. And so we're living proof mm-hmm. of what we're talking about and what the Bible says. Are sinners and enemies synonyms? I, I think so. I, I do. I mean, if you, you, look, there's two types of people. You either have Christ or you don't have Christ. He mm-hmm. who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You're either saved or lost. You're either a child of light or darkness. Your father is God or your father is the devil. I mean, there's we could go on for five minutes listing the the, the descriptions of those who are saved and those who are lost. But yes, I would say that those who are lost are enemies, they're sinners, they're separated from God. We who are in Christ have been brought near to God. We are united with him, uh, friends of God, and reconciled to him. And although yeah, we think... commit—I'm sorry, go ahead, Peter. No, 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 go ahead, Tom. And although we commit sin as believers and need to repent, that doesn't make us sinners. Sinners is a derogatory term of those opposed to the Lord himself. Correct. I agree with that. And... 
And I think if we're troubled by that word enemies, when we think about loved ones or people close to us that are, um, are, are not walking with Jesus, I think we have to get in our mind's eye that the kingdom treats enemies different than how maybe we do as worldly or earthly powers, because, I mean, Ukraine is treating its enemy, Russia, um, through violence and bloodshed, and, and Russia the same way to Ukraine, and, you know, we talk about China being our enemy. Like When we think about enemies in earthly terms, it's people that we are seeking to be against and to drive out. But in the kingdom, and Jeff, you said it so well earlier, God so loved the world that um, to, to have somebody who is an enemy to the cross means that you move towards them with love, the desire that they'd be reconciled and restored. You don't move with violence against them. You don't move in the ways that we do in the world. And so uh, just because I'm guessing there's a lot of people listening that that are followers of Jesus, but are really concerned about their loved ones, right, that maybe aren't. Um, but we treat enemies in the kingdom extremely differently. We're still for them and with them and pursuing them and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's a passage in James chapter 2, verse 14. The Bible says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith, can that faith save him? Why is James emphasizing works when so much of the Bible emphasizes faith? Yeah, I think I think we need to probably swim around in this question for a while, Bill. I'm not going to go too long with it, but I think it bears uh, worth mentioning that Martin Luther, who was the author of so much of our understanding in, in Western Christianity, his primary idea about Christianity was that we are justified in our standing in front of God by faith, meaning that if we put our faith in Jesus, then we can stand in front of a holy God and Jesus sort of covers us. And that was his way of dealing with purgatory at that time. But because James seems to be offering a different kind of um, teaching here, Martin Luther actually went so far as to want to take it out of the scriptures because it seemed in conflict to his understanding of justification by faith. So this question that's come in, I think, is a really important one that um, we don't want to dodge in terms of how does faith, how do faith and works operate together? Because Martin Luther, as, as good as work as he did in a number of different ways, he, like any theologian, was subject to the concerns of his time um, and really maybe emphasized certain things versus the, the to the detriment of others. So I'd be curious other people's thoughts, but that's a little background on why that question is so important. Yeah, I don't think James or Paul are disagreeing with each other um, in any way. Um, I think James is a little harder to understand, and I've, I've, uh, I understand what Martin Luther's complaint is about James. I've kind of had the same thing. But you, when you realize that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good work. So when we say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace we have been saved, not by work so that no one can boast, right? It's by faith and faith alone. But then the next passage is once you've been saved, God wants you to do good works, that is what you've been created in Christ Jesus to do, the next verse says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. So some want to say, well, you have to have these works in order to to be saved. I, I just, the, admin, the, the, the line I come back to over and over again is we are saved by faith, not by fruit. So James here cannot be saying that you're saved by your works. You're saved by faith alone. And I just want to point out one key word that I think helps. And in, in verse 17 in, in James, in the same chapter, it says, in the same way, faith by itself, it, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And a lot of folks want to take that word dead and say, meaning they're unsaved. And what that Greek word actually means is that it's worthless. It's you're not doing anything with this faith that I gave you. I've made you holy and blameless in this world, 
but you're not living it out. Well, if you were if you breed animals for a living, if you breed a thoroughbred racehorse, when that thorough when that fold is is born, that's what you expect eventually they'll become. They're not going to be that at the beginning. It's going to take time. But you don't let that horse out just to run in the wilderness and say, "Hey, have a good time." When we come to salvation, we bring nothing. Absolutely nothing. We surrender ourselves to Jesus. Once we have that salvation, there is an expectation that we are to grow and to become like Jesus. I think the instead of the word works, I often use the term in preaching to now become like Jesus, to literally uh, reflect Jesus in what we say and we do. Because would Jesus be concerned about the homeless? Would Jesus forgive his enemies? Of course. That's what we're to do as well. So... Here's another. Oh, Peter, were you going to say something? Well, yeah, I'm just just kind of curious that maybe, Bill, that question that you're going to say is related to it. But I think what I hear sometimes from people from from pastoral ministry years, but also from my students in in class, when it comes to this faith and works relationship, that they're so petrified that maybe they're not going to go into heaven when they die, that they feel like they need to have a series of certain kinds of works to demonstrate that they actually do have faith. And then they stop maybe, or they have a bad week of doing works, however they define that, or they have a bad month of doing works, however they define that. And they think, well, maybe I don't have faith. And then they take the next logical step is, well, maybe I'm not saved. I don't know if you guys have dealt with that, but I Mm -hmm. think that's the tension in this question. There is. And it's, you know, and it's often taught, well, if there's no fruit, then there is no root. And and I just I fundamentally disagree with that kind of line because we are saved by faith, not by fruits. When it says that faith without works is dead, it's literally the Greek is nekros, and it means it can mean destitute of force or power, inactive, inoperable, unfruitful. So that is what he's describing there, James. He's not saying faith without works means you're unsaved. It means that faith without works, you're being unproductive, unfruitful. You're destitute of the power that God has given you to do good works. And we always say to people, you have been born for a purpose. That purpose we come to realize when we know Jesus. He wants to shape us into that person. Here's a quick question before we go to break. Uh, David said, when believers do something good, for example, like let someone go in front of you while you're driving or refrain from doing something selfish, is that the Holy Spirit working in us or is it good deeds or both? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) all right that snappy answer we'll move on (laughs) let me know what your questions are 877-933-2484 we're going to return with jeff verdorn tom Parrish, and peter kaffner be right back Welcome back to Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. Here's something that came in, and here's the question. Is surrender really the gospel and how we are saved? I thought Jesus is the Savior and faith in him, and what he has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel, and that he is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Well, let's define the gospel first, and as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, This gospel I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, he was buried, and he rose again according to the Scriptures, and appeared to many. That's really the gospel of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And it is by this gospel that we are saved. In order to believe that, there has to be some recognition 
of who we are, sinners, mm-hmm. before a holy God. Mm-hmm. We're separated from him. So there, I mean, this is maybe semantics. There's got to be some surrendering to yourself and, and realization that you need a Savior, right? One of the first steps of being saved is I'm a sinner and I need salvation, um, so if, if that's surrender, then then it's surrender. Now, surrender as a believer is the continuing surrendering of your own will to the will of God. So Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but his will be done. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. So the the job of surrendering is is never done as a Christian. Oh, and even, you know, even the Bible says, to all who received him, who believed on his name, that's an action. You got to do something. It's kind of like uh, a friend of mine out west got bit by a rattlesnake. Now he could have gone home and said, "We'll see how this fares," but he immediately drove in to a local uh, medical facility, and they gave him the shot. Now, what saved him? Well, it wasn't because he drove the medical facility. It was smart that he did that. It's the shot that they gave him that saved him from the rattle bike and rattlesnake. And that Jesus does the saving. We simply do what the Bible says, you know, about confessing Him. And giving our lives over to him. I need better yeah. stories. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, I got, I got horses, nothing. rattlesnakes. <laughs> no, no, you know, I, got I, just, I need better stories. <laughs> yeah, I think Parrish just makes them up as he goes along. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He's he's been pastoring a long time. He's got a lot of stories. Peter, you tell an interesting story now. <laughs> <laughs> there Strike we go. one, two, and three on that. That's for sure. Yeah, I went now, to the I, I went to the store to buy some bologna, and there were buy one get one free, so I got two. There's my story. <laughs> that, that evokes significant deep. emotion. In the I know. I, I figured. That. I figured. Yeah. No. More later. I, you know. I, th- I think one thing, just quickly on the gospel, like to, I think it's a great question. I mean, the gospel clearly is that Jesus beat the power of sin and death. I mean, that's it's and it. What we're talking about is our response to it, and mm-hmm. and our response of surrender is the appropriate response to that. I think there's one little, uh, maybe side note that people ask questions about sometimes is um, what role do we play in salvation? And of course, we don't play the role in the breaking power of sin and death. But on the other side of it, some Christian traditions will teach what's called the doctrine of total depravity, meaning that the human being is totally depraved and entirely incapable of even recognizing the good news and therefore has no decision-making, which means that God has elected or predestined some to be Christians. And that is one historic Christian view. Other historic Christian views um, that were faithful to the text as well would suggest that in our inmost being, we can sense and know that which is good, we just then can't do it um, on our own. And so the only move you can do is to see, yeah, I care about or delight in what is good, but I can't do it. So all I can do is surrender. And so either way, I mean, the response is surrender either way in that. But I think that's where people sometimes get tripped up is do we do the surrendering or does God do something to us before we do this running? I mean, they're just interesting questions. Um, in what that. I'm still astounded at is how many of us read John chapter 3 with Nicodemus and yet come out with so many different points of view on what's going on. Jesus is very emphatic. Nicodemus says, can I get back in my mother's womb? And, uh, and Jesus didn't say, oh, yeah, 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 you know, I mean, because Nicodemus wasn't getting it. But he said, it's like the wind, Nicodemus. You know, what control do you have over the wind? It comes and it goes. You have no control over being born again. It's what I do for you or the Father and the Spirit does for you so you can wake up spiritually and then respond to what I'm giving you. So I think that too often uh, we forget that there is that, that, that whole process goes together. It's really the work of the Holy Spirit. It's really the Lord that wakes us up. 
Um, as one pastor once told me, I thought it was a great statement. He said, Tom, if, you know, you go to heaven, it's all Jesus doing. If you go to hell, it's all your fault. And I, I've come to really finally realize, yeah, he gives me the opportunity, but he doesn't force me to do it. He gives an, an invitation. A friend once gave me this T-shirt that said, I chose this T-shirt, but on the back it says, this T-shirt chose me. <laughs> and, and it was Good. kind of fun to wear. But look, he goes on in John chapter 3 to say, whosoever yeah. believes in me will be saved. And it's fascinating. That Greek word for believe is the Greek word pistuyo, and it's actually in the active voice yes. in the Greek. Mm-hmm. We believe God saves. Saves is in the passive voice in the Greek. It's God who saves us. But he commands us to believe. He offers us salvation to whosoever believes. We need to hear the gospel. We need to believe it. And then God does the saving. The picture, a story in Scripture is the I stand. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, I stand at the door and knock. Whosoever opens the door, I think that's a picture of faith, of believing, I will come in and eat with them, and they with me. That's a picture of salvation. In that great painting, there is no handle on the outside of the door. Hmm. It's not Jesus isn't going to bust in. Correct. He isn't going to kick the door down. He's knocking. We need to open the door. Great picture. Yeah, and I was just going back to that previous question about being nice to somebody on the road. I would be curious a little bit more thoughts on that because, again, it's one of those questions I hear a lot. It 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 seems like people who would say they are not followers of Jesus also are simultaneously capable of what appears on the outside to be a really nice thing for somebody. I mean, I certainly have experienced sure. that from people. I have, I have good friends of mine that are not followers of Jesus, and yet they do genuinely nice things sure. for me. And so, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are puzzled by that question of how can that be if only Christians can do authentically good things, but if non-Christians can do good things, then what's the point of being a Christian? You know what I mean? Like, these are big questions that I think people have that I don't always know we have a great response to. Well, doing good things doesn't necessarily make someone a Christian. Doing good things is because of we've met Jesus, and he's made all the difference in our life. There are many non-believers who do wonderful things all around the world, and I applaud them for that. But they don't know the saving power of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you don't know me, you know, you don't enter the kingdom of God. You know, I think it's Isaiah says, all your righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. So you you think you're doing good, and the world might define it as good, but to God, you know, everything not done outside of faith, or everything done outside of faith is sin, according to God. So to produce good, good fruit in God's eyes, I believe you have to be a believer, but that doesn't mean the world isn't going to recognize some of the things that unbelievers do as being good. Sure. All right, here's a shameless plug for Guy Talk. We uh, did a 15-minute video on forgiveness, which is going to uh, come and be available right after the show. And it's uh, go to MyFaithRadio.com. You can check on the link for uh, the YouTube channel, which we have, and there it will be. A nice little 15-minute video. It'll probably take you longer than 15 minutes to watch because you'll... You'll want to pause it several times and go do other things. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you want to chew on the great No, no, I was thinking you may not be able to sit for 15 minutes in a row, right? I'm just thinking people, if they watch it, they're going to be theologically blown away. And so, you uh, know, maybe that's, that's it. Not, it's funny. That's not where I was going. <laughs> but It was good, I thought. It was great. I thought it was, it was great. Was wonderful. Yeah. I yeah, enjoyed so it immensely. You can go to myfaithradio.com and check it out. It's about a 15-minute video with uh, Guy Talk, and we did it in front of a camera. 
that's usually how videos that's work. That's usually how right? videos yeah, work. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if the camera if the camera is still usable or not, but you know, it's, it's hey, what it is. Once it's done, it's done. And thank you, thank you, Tom Parrish. Thank you. So check that out. You know, this is the fastest hour on radio. We're like kind of done. I can't believe. And it. I've got I've got uh, seven or eight more questions that have come in that, and I really want to say I'm sorry to the ones who sent in these great questions that we didn't get to today, but I will save them for next week. So. Do we, do we get any kind of preview of anything that maybe we could think about for next sure, week? Sure, sure. Uh, this, inter- this is interesting. In First Samuel, Elkanah seems to think that he is enough to comfort Hannah. That's verse uh, one eight. Mm. How much of that is Elkanah being clueless, and how much of that is Elkanah, like myself and many other husbands, not picking up on the intricacies and the sensitivities of a woman? I wow. think that's both and. <laughs> oh, look at the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Realistically. Next week, from what I can tell. Yeah. And all you guys are out next week. Oh, okay. uh, there we go. All I'll right. have to do a little studying for that one. Yeah, so thank for you sure. for joining me, gentlemen. As always, it's a blast to, to be love part it. of this. Yeah, thank you so much. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Roger Parrott's going to join me. He's written a book called Opportunity Leadership. It says, stop planning and start getting results. And one of this thing that just caught my attention was, Leading without a plan is the plan. So we're going to find out about that. And then Bev Canaris is going to join me. We're going to talk about consecration. That's all coming up next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.